he is here. Uh, I, I can't imagine that there is anyone uh, that there is anyone here who does not know why uh, they're here or who it is we are honoring. But just in case, of course, it is Jay Lachlan, oh, the publisher of Two Directions, who has been publishing many of the most um, significant writers of the past five decades, and who uh, most of them he knew as a friend and as an acquaintance. Gertrude Stein, Ezra Pound, William Carlos Williams, Tennessee Williams, Kenneth Rexroth, whole extraordinary list, Henry Miller. Uh, oddly, uh, his family, Pittsburgh, didn't read a great deal except the Bible. Uh, his mother, according to him, read very bad novels by Lloyd Douglas. But what an extraordinary career he has had in literature and in writing. Uh, he's known just about every, everybody. We did a re an interview with him. Uh, my name, incidentally, is George Plimpton, the editor of the Paris Review, which is a, a small, uh, would like to be larger, uh, literary uh, magazine. And I've known about uh, Jay Lachlan really since college years. Uh, we were talking at dinner tonight, and it was pointed out that um, when I was in college, if you saw a young woman uh, carrying a New Directions volume under her arm, uh, that you knew that she would go all the way. And it helped a lot if you had, which we often did, uh, volumes of New Direction under our arms. Uh, Jay had the, the sort of father uh, anyone in the literary world should have. If uh, Jay asked him for money, his father would say, are you going to publish uh, some more of those books that I can't understand? And Jay would say yes, and his father would give him uh, the money. He knew everybody and has wonderful anecdotes about them, about Ezra Pound. He didn't think much of Beethoven, and at a performance of Beethoven's Fidelio conducted by Toscanini, Pound rose up and said in a very clear voice, the man had syphilis, <laughs> and stalked out. A man of opinion. He once wrote a letter to Bennett Cerf, Dear Bennett, you have just committed one of the great crimes against American culture of our day, you have let Stondahl's Chartreuse de Palme go out of print. Sincerely yours. The first time I ever met uh, Jay Lachlan was in 1955. We had just in Paris started the Paris Review. And I wasn't sure that that was what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. Most literary magazines last, what? two, three years, four years perhaps. And I was at the opera with my um, mother and father at the Met. And for some reason or other, we were in a, uh, went up to where the boxes are, the grand tier. And I met this rather elegant man in black tie who came up to me and said, you know, I very much admire your magazine. At this time we had, I think, three numbers and I did not know that anybody read uh, the Paris Review, other than one's immediate family. And so to be told by this man I was introduced to, and of course knew as the editor and publisher of New Directions, and to be told that one should continue it, and that one admired it, uh, sent me back to Paris to continue this thing. Uh, something in some ways I've often regretted. Uh, I might have been a, a contender.
as they say. At any rate, we're so pleased to have him here tonight. This is a year of honoring this extraordinary man whose New Directions has gone on with such enormous success over the years. He was saying at dinner tonight that it lost money for 23 years until Henry Miller uh, came along. I might add that the Paris Review has lost money for 40 years <laughs> and uh, Henry Miller has not appeared on the scene. If you all subscribe, it would help our lot a great deal. At any rate, we have an extraordinary group of people who will reminisce about Jay Lachlan, who have poems to read. He will be reading uh, some poems and talking about his great uh, career, I hope, very informally. And it gives me an enormous amount of pleasure to introduce Jay Lachlan. George is always too indulgent. That's why he gets so much business on TV. <laughs> but he, underneath that veneer, there is a heart of gold. I thought it would be interesting to recapture some of the history of the past by reading to you poems which I had written uh, to uh, some of the authors uh, whom I had published. And the first one is to Ezra Pound, and specifically to Pound's cantos, and it's called The Beautiful Muttering. The young man who becomes, are we having trouble with this? Should I turn it off? I think it's just getting near that. Yeah. The young man who becomes an old man, as we read his cantos, is telling us all he knows about everything he has ever done or seen or heard or read. His discourse is like the endless beating of the surf on the shore, the polyphoes thalesseth of Homer. It is the voice of the blind singer and the voice of the old man in the village square near Chindambaram who is intoning the Ramayana again and again and again. It is an almost interminable muttering, but of such grace of phrase, of such wisdom, that we are lost in its spell. We want to live for ourselves everything the poet has done or seen or heard or read. Sick scriptum est. Pound, of course, was my original mentor. I studied with him uh, in Rapallo, and it was he who told me that I should become a publisher because my poetry was hopeless and would never amount to anything. Uh, I was discouraged for a few years until I met William Carlos Williams. Uh, Williams was the most cheerful person you can imagine. He was a wonderful guy. He was, as you know, a pediatrician in Rutherford, New Jersey. I called him the non-cutaneous man because it was as if he had no skin, that he could put himself in relation uh, immediately with any person whom he met, uh, no matter what his class or background. He wrote uh, many kinds of poems. He wrote, uh, for example, uh, what the uh, philosopher Kenneth Burke called his glimpses. 
Williams would be riding along in his car uh, to go on a house call. In those days, doctors did go on house calls. And he would see something in the street uh, which would strike him immediately as being the subject of a short poem. And he would jot it down on a prescription sl slip which he had on the seat of the car beside him, and out of that would come a poem. And Kenneth Burke, his philosopher friend, said that Williams was the master of the glimpse, and that was his starting great fort, that he could pick up things that he saw, uh, such as the old lady uh, munching an apple on the street, or the uh, uh, chicken and the wheelbarrow and those things, just glimpses, but he immortalized them by his objectivism, his terseness. Now this poem is called So Much Depends, which is a line out of the poem about the chickens, the red wheelbarrow. So much depends, Bill, on the way you saw, the way your heart saw, what your eyes saw, not just the way you saw a wheelbarrow or the foals or the blossoms of the shad tree or floss in a rose and 100 other flowers your patience and the babies and the measure of your lands in Bruegel's painting of that dance. So many things the rest of us would never have seen except for you. Next we have Kenneth Rexroth, who uh, succeeded uh, Pound as my mentor. Pound, as you know, had a very sad life. He was absolutely brilliant and promising in every way. Knows so much about poetry. And then in his 50s, he began, a screw began to go loose in his head. And he became uh, potty, uh, anti-Semitic, fascist. Uh, it was one of the saddest lives I know. But up to that point, he, he was incomparable as a teacher because he, he, he had studied poetry to the point that nobody else ever had, and he imparted it with brilliance in his private school. Now, after Pound drifted off into these other uh, areas of interest in which I could not follow him because they, uh, they were simply inhumane, uh, Kenneth Rexroth of California, the poet and essayist, became my uh, source of information, my source of instruction, uh, source of friendship, source of many things. Uh, Kenneth was a very remarkable man. He was an autodidact. Uh, he had taught himself everything that he knew, and he used to boast that his mother was the first acknowledged lesbian in the state of Illinois. <laughs> That's the way he was. He shocked with frankness. This is a rather long-lined uh, uh, description of Kenneth. I wrote this. Uh, uh, Kenneth is, is very popular in Japan. He spent a lot of time there on Fulbrights, and he learned a lot of the language. And one of the universities worships Kenneth, and they've started a magazine in his honor. And they asked me to, to write a poem for it. So I thought that I would try to give a somewhat journalistic account of uh, what Kenneth was like. Impossible to encapsulate him. He always said he was a Buddhist, 
But when he was dying, he took the biscuit from the Jesuits. Such an inconsistency was part of his nature and part of his strength. He was the perpetual dissident. He liked to say that the good people were the bad people and the bad people were the good people. A strong advocate of women's rights who was hard on his wives. He chose to live in the black quarter of San Francisco. He published in the highbrow magazines, but also wrote a column for the Hearst newspaper. He had good friends in high Jewish society and good friends in Chinatown. One of his counselors was a wise old whore on Market Street. He had a photographic memory and wrote his learned essays without looking anything up. His study period was the bathtub, where he spent hours reading difficult books on a slanting board above the water. He was one of the superb talkers of his generation, a great cook, and he didn't drink. He liked to say outrageous things, but often there was sense in them if you could untangle the gist from the rhetoric. The mountains were the true love of his life. In summer, we packed up into Kings River Canyon in the Sierras with a mule. He could cook a banquet over the campfire coals with the little that the mule was carrying. I didn't doubt him when he said that he conversed with the deer and other animals. When we were fishing a mountain stream, he could see trout under the water 50 yards ahead. When we ski camped in winter on the east side of the Sierras above Bishop, we didn't have to pack a tent because he could carve out a niche in a snowbank with a ski tip, floor the little cave with fir boughs, and we slept warm. Once when we were snow camping up near Mineral King, he sat on a stump all day, meditating, while I climbed a ridge on skis, four hours motionless in meditation. There was philosophy for him in the stars, as his great mountain poems show, all history was alive in his brain. Wherever he was, energy was surging out of him. One friend describes him as electric. I can accept that if we remember electricity does not only generate motion, it also produces warmth and illumination. Now here's a very sad one. This is about, called Dylan. One of us had to make the official identification of Dylan's body at the medical examiner's morgue. Brennan and I tossed a coin and I lost. It was a crummy building in the hospital complex on First Avenue and the basement smelling of formaldehyde was a confusion of trolleys with rubber sheets covering bodies. A little old man in a rubber apron was in charge. He put on his glasses to read the name I had written on a slip of paper and looked around, trying to remember. He lifted one sheet. Is this him? It wasn't. Two or three more, who weren't old messy of the pubs of Soho and Chelsea, finally we found him and he looked awful, all bloated. Insult to the brain was what it said on the autopsy report. Too much booze for too many years. 
The old man sent me to a window to confirm the identification where there was a little girl about five feet high struggling with the forms using a pencil stub. She got me to write Dylan for her on the form because she had never heard of such a name and couldn't spell it. What was his profession, she asked. I told her he was a poet. She looked perplexed. What's a poet, she asked. I told her a poet was a person who wrote poems. She put that down, and that's what it says on the form. Dylan Thomas, a poet, he wrote poems. Dylan was a problem because of the drink. Uh, I knew him early, oh, early on in London, long before we published him, and even then, uh, boozing in the pubs was his thing. And it, uh, although he was very witty and friendly and sweet in a way, it just sort of complicated life to, uh, to get him down to, a, to a, a positive human basis. And then after he had come to this country, uh, it just got worse. Uh, because there were various uh, sycophants, uh, I won't mention names, but some of them are still around, who thought nothing, had, had a little money and thought nothing was funnier than to take uh, Dylan out drinking for the day. And finally, it just uh, did him in. There was a devoted girl, who uh, Liz Rytel, who tried to save him, who uh, his wife, Caitlin, was way back in England, and she'd been converted to drink anyway. And this nice girl tried very hard to get him to a cure and so forth and get him straightened out, but she wasn't successful. Now the last one is uh, Tennessee, Tennessee Williams, uh, a very dear man, a man who managed to get his life uh, all sort of tangled up and messied up in various ways, but who through that uh, persevered in writing uh, so many truly great plays which are the masterpieces of our theater and uh, each one of which, even the lesser ones, uh, is infused with his particular sense uh, of poetry. Uh, a very good poet himself, uh, little known because when a person gets famous for being something popular like a playwright, uh, people don't pay much attention to his poetry. Uh, but there are three volumes of it, and it's very much uh, worth your attention. It's a romantic poetry. Uh, he made no bones about that, but it's, uh, it's first-rate stuff. And, of course, also his short stories were superb. Uh, they dealt with some of the uh, problems which interfused his life, the uh, question of uh, people being gay and so forth. This is called Tennessee. Uh, Tennessee called death the sudden subway, and now he has taken that train. Now that line is from Streetcar, I think. Uh, Tennessee called death the sudden su subway, and now he has taken that train. But there are so many good things to remember. First, the young man in sloppy pants and a torn gray sweater, whom I met at Lincoln Kirstein's cocktail party. He was very shy and had hidden himself in a side room. I too was shy, but we got talking. He told me that he wrote plays and that he loved Hart Crane. He carried the poems of Crane in his knapsack wherever he hitchhiked. When his first night of glory in Chicago, uh, when he and Laurette Taylor made a new American theater, 
I remember happy days with him in London and Italy and Key West, and how often friends and writers who were down on their luck told me how generously he had helped them, but you would never hear that from him. So many fine things to remember that I can live again in my mind until it is my turn to join him on the sudden subway. That's it. Jay, um, on the way down in the, in the car, I asked Jay to give these little pocket uh, impressions of some of the speakers who will be coming up tonight. The first being um, Robert Giroux, who is the president of um, Farah Strauss Giroux. He said quite simply, uh, Jay did, that uh, Robert Giroux is the greatest editor of the age. So here he is, the greatest editor of the age. I was hired as a very junior editor at Hawkeye Brace and Company in 1939. And it tells you something about the quality and standards of the era that one of the first manuscripts Mr. Brace put on my desk was Edmund Wilson's Intellectual History of Socialism to the Finland Station. It was a masterpiece. It required no editing and therefore I thought it would be a bestseller. To my amazement, it sold only 4,000 copies and was condescendingly reviewed. This was my first disillusioning experience with the book business. <laughs> of course, this fascinating book went ahead. Uh, it was ahead of its time. It stayed in print, <coughs> and after the war it came out as a paperback, in the new Anchor Book series and found a wider audience. And when FSG republished it in cloth in 1972, it finally had a front page review in the New York Times Book Review. The Times had caught up with it. I tell this story because it demonstrates Jay Lachlan's extraordinary role in American publishing history as the founder of New Directions. He decided and he had the taste and judgment to do so, to publish books that were ahead of their times. In the year I started at Harcourt, I learned, I learned that three years earlier, in 1936, during the Depression period, that this young man, an undergraduate, had established his new publishing house. He had interrupted his studies in Harvard and went abroad to Rapallo to enroll in Ezra Pound's as university. He went in the hope of becoming a good writer and a better poet under Pound's tutelage, but it seemed that Pound wanted a publisher for his own books and those of his friends, and he inspired Jay to start New Directions for that purpose.
We have all been the beneficiaries thereof. New Directions became and continues to be one of the great American publishing houses. I first met him around 1941 through his friend and mine, Robert Fitzgerald, whose translations from the Greek drama in collaboration with Dudley Fitz, one of Jay's teachers, were published by Harcourt. I think we became really good friends when we were both publishing Thomas Merton's books. I knew Merton as an undergraduate at Columbia, not as a Catholic, which he hadn't yet become, but as a jazz enthusiast, a movie buff, and an aspiring writer. Jay's essay about him in his book Random Essays is a very accurate portrait of this complex and gifted monk with whom he became a close friend. On one bizarre occasion at the library of Our Lady of Gethsemane in Kentucky, when Jay and I happened to arrive at the same time, he had brought with him a hard-to-get French edition of Jean Genet's new book, Notre Dame des Fleurs, at a time when it was said that copies were being smuggled into the Gotham Bookmart by French sailors. The Abbey was the last place in which I expected to find Genet's book, which Merton quickly read after I did. You could always depend on Jay for the latest literary discovery. Many weird stories circulated about Jay in the early days. For example, he loved skiing, a sport which in the 30s and 40s was mostly limited to foreign resorts like Saint Moritz. One story said that there were no available rooms in the only ski lodge in Utah in those days, so Jay bought the lodge. I've never asked him if this story was true because it's one I like to tell. I also learned that to save production costs, he used printers in France and Italy, emulating Sylvia Beach's intelligent precedent with Joyce's Ulysses. And I also heard that, Jay's, that Jay only published books he liked, and that his literary tastes were avant-garde and Catholic with a small c. John Berryman, whose first poems Jay published in the anthology Five Young American Poets, along with Randall Jarrell, told me that the editors of New Directions were themselves poets and writers. And he mentioned Delmore Schwartz and, and Kenneth Patchen. And while Jay was an upperclassman at Harvard, Robert Lowell, who spent only his freshman year there before dropping out to go to uh, Kenyon, told me that he had discovered the poetry of William Carlos Williams through Jay, who was, quote, he said, much taller and older than I was. I found out that this was hyperbole. Lowell himself was six feet one and only three years younger than Jay. I've always admired Jay for acquiring Juno Barnes's Nightwood when Harcourt Brace let it go out of print over my protests. New Directions not only reprinted it, but they have kept it in print. Jay once told me that he was scolded by Juna who regarded all publishers as our enemies because of a dispute about royalties. He told her he would always treat her fairly, as well as with the good manners he had learned at his mother's knee. At their next encounter, an accidental one on a street in Grandis Village, Juna greeted him by saying, and how is your mother's knee? 
Jay has written a piece called Some Irreverent Literary History, in which he said that Pound neglected to tell him how difficult it is to market books. Let me quote. In my innocence, I imagine that if one printed a book by Pound or Bill Williams, loving angels and apsaraces would carry it on swift wings to bookstores, libraries, and readers in all corners of our great land. Alas, it was not so. So Jay became a book salesman himself and traveled across the country. The quote continues. The boy publisher loaded up his ancient Buick with books and headed west. Imagine, if you will, that you were the lady book buyer in Halley's department store in Cleveland, one of the best in the land. Suddenly you are confronted by a bizarre apparition, a frighteningly tall young man in Austrian Lodenmantel, his eyes aflame, who tells you that your customers should be reading some nut over in Italy and an obscure pediatrician in Rutherford, New Jersey. I would leave the store with an order for one or two copies of each book I offered, not enough to pay for the gas, let alone my B&B at a tourist home. There were no motels in those days, but enough to give hope to battle another day. In hacks bay vivit. Jay has given due praise to one of the great culture heroines of that time, St. Francis Stelloff of the Gotham Book Mart. The first orders he received for Pound and Williams came from her. He said she could smell good books before she saw them. Every five years or so, the American Academy of Arts and Letters awards a gold medal, quote, for distinguished service to the arts. In 1977, for the first and only time in its history, the award was given to a book publisher, James Lachlan in New Directions. In making the presentations, Jacques Bazin said that Jay, quote, has been for decades the one and only American publisher to, to devote time, energy, judgment, and material resources to issuing and keeping in print the masters of modern literature, recent and contemporary. This unique reward was not only well-deserved, but the passion and imagination with which Jay got New Directions started against tremendous odds and maintained it successfully for almost 60 years in a country a good deal of which is anti-intellectual and a frightening part of which is illiterate. And he, he has continued to support the firm's high standards and character for so many decades with the help of a devoted and gifted staff. He deserves my thanks and yours. Thank you, Jay. Thank you, Bob. It was wonderful. Any comments, Jay? Hayden Carruth there. Uh, published five books of uh, poetry with New Directions. He's up this year uh, nominated for the National Book Award for his collected uh, shorter poems, Copper Canyon Press. He's the recipient of many uh, awards and fellowships, the Guggenheim, Bollingen, National Foundation Fellowships, 
and the Ruth Lilly Poetry Prize. He's published over 26 uh, books of poetry and essays. The uh, five books of poetry with uh, new directions. You may remember in the days of long titles, uh, Arthur Kopitz's play, Oh Dad, Poor Dad, uh, Mama's Hung You in the Closet, and I'm Feeling So Sad. Uh, Mr. Carruth's most recent book is entitled, Tell Me Again How the White Heron Rises and Flies Across the Nacreous River at Twilight Toward Distant Islands. He's beaten Mr. Coppett solid on that one. Hayden Carruth. talk very well, so I'm going to read a poem. This is called Purana, meaning once upon a time. A Purana is a, uh, a little story or a fable that's attached to the, to the Hindu holy texts. Only the gods may act with perfect impudence, that is, irrationally. Listen while I retell a story from a book as old as the Toby Woods. It fell on an autumn night when the forest leaves moved like small rustling animals across the moss and Jumna flowed with a sure deep running strength that Sri Krishna played his flute by the riverbank and the moonlight dripped like rain from tangled trees. The music of love came liquidly to the village where gopis, who were the milkmaids, drank willlessly, their souls tipped to the song in unimagined thirst. And soon they ran unresistingly to the forest, one by one and in groups, tripping and hurrying, leaving parents, brothers, sisters, husbands behind, leaving their babies whimpering in the cradles. They said, ah, heavily love-laden, we will give all. Conceive the bewilderment in their eyes when Krishna surrounded the good looks of him, bruising the girls, rebuked them, saying, what, have you come in the night through the forest? Then you care nothing for tigers? Shame, respectable girls running after a lover in the night, sacrificing your lords and your parents, your brothers and sisters and children. Pretty girls, go back to your places. Go back and be content. Tears melted their eyes and their hearts were frightened. They looked miserably at one another in their confusion and began to scratch the ground with their feet like deer. At last they said, Truly we must attend our husbands and our parents and children, but, O oh, sweet Lord, when thou art husband, parent, and child, is it not just that we seek the pleasures of all of these in thee? The All One turned away, and I think said nothing, and sorely, wearily, the milkmaids returned to the village, their question unanswered. The singing hermit thrush in Toby Woods has brought this to my mind. 
the leaves are beginning to fall. Soon he will be gone. I wrote that poem in 1960 in the Toby Woods in a little cottage which was on the property of James Lachlan. The woods was a wonderful uh, stretch of woodland that included in its midst a place called Toby Pond, which most people not in New England would have called a lake. It was a good-sized piece of water. I lived there for two years in that cottage and wrote a good deal. And, on, and had the good fortune to, uh, to be there when Jazz, as I call him, had uh, not long ago returned from Burma and other places in the Far East with books and paintings and uh, sculptures and all kinds of things. So I began to study these things and I uh, even translated a little Sanskrit, which I was terrible. I never did anything with it. But, uh, but that is how that poem came to be. I first met Lachlan in 1948. He is the oldest friend I have. I believe, if my mathematics are correct, we've been friends for 44, 45 years. Uh, I was living in Chicago at that time. Later, he invited me to come to New York and work for him in an organization called Inter uh, Intercultural Publications, which was funded by the Ford Foundation. And I worked there for a couple of years and then became ill. Uh, I had been ill all along, but I became iller and uh, ended in the hospital for a long time and then living in seclusion for a long time. And finally uh, began to get out a little bit and I received another summons. Uh, that's not the right word. He didn't summon me. He invited me to come and work for him again, this time in, at his home in northwestern Connecticut. Uh, working on the old correspondence files of the New Direction, which were stored in a building that was called the stable, or the carriage house. I can't remember which. It was a fascinating job. I don't think it did any good. Uh, I think that Lachlan invited me up there because he thought it would be good for me, and it was. It was a wonderful thing for him to do for me and helped me enormously. Uh, and I learned a lot from working on those files, too, if you can imagine sitting down with a, with a whole file folder, three feet long, full of correspondence from Ezra Pound, or William Carlos Williams, or Kenneth Rexroth, who once called me a vaticide, <coughs> uh, and other people. I came to like some of them immensely. Uh, I had already liked many of them immensely. I came to despise a few of them. But it was a fascinating job, and I did it. And when I was finished, I went back to the country where I came from and became a farmer and a woodcutter. So that uh, the friendship between Lachlan and Carruth is a rather strange one. Uh, a, a, uh, a person of, of great wisdom and knowledge and, and sophistication in the best sense of that word who has been uh, everywhere and done everything and knows everybody and has written uh, poems of such, such sweetness and such uh, historical sweetness. I don't know if you know what I mean, but his collected poems are coming out in a few months and I wrote an introduction for it and I certainly do think you all must read it because they're poems such as nobody else has written in the 20th century. Uh, poems derived from his knowledge of uh, ancient uh, literature, 
ancient culture, but with an, a very keen awareness of uh, our own predicament. Many years have passed since then. He has done many other things for me. I have worked for him in many capacities, although I have never been on the payroll of New Directions. I, I've done a lot of uh, freelance jobs for New Directions, copy editing and writing jacket copy and stuff like that. And, uh, and we have exchanged probably 10 million letters. Uh, it must be at least 10, maybe 11 million. There's just an enormous number of letters. Uh, most of them quite brief, most of them quite dull, but uh, nevertheless, they have, they have been a connection, an important connection to me. And what I want to end with is my knowledge, which is, which is not real knowledge, because it's, in, it's obtained by, from rumor and from inference, that what Lachlan did for me, he has done for a great many other people a great many poets, a great many, I suspect, people who are, who are not poets, or not, at least not particularly gifted poets. He has done, he has helped them. He's helped them in ways that are unknown, indirect, unacknowledged, but it's there. He has made a tremendous difference. And I thank him on behalf of all of these anonymous others who have been helped as I have. Thank you. I can, I can say that through Hayden's life with New Directions, he has been the rock, the man you could always depend on. Walter Abish has published three novels with um, New Directions, including the Penn Faulkner Award winner, How Jim Is It. He's a MacArthur Fellow. He's presently at work on a novel which will be published by Knopf. We were talking in the car about his uh, novel, Alphabetical Africa, on the way down, which uh, Abish, being a stylistic innovator, uh, started, I believe, each chapter running through the alphabet using the word letter A, and then AB, and then ABC. Had some trouble with Z, according to uh, Jay, but, um, and then did it all backwards. So if you read uh, Alphabetical Africa, you notice this stylistic uh, trick which apparently, according to Jay, does not hurt the temper of the novel at all. A wonderful novel despite um, uh, the pleasant trickery. Uh, Walter Abish. Actually, I wrote Alphabetical Africa for Jay. Um, 
he had liked um, a piece I'd written uh, called Mind's Meat and um, asked me if I had something similar to Mind's Meat for the New Directions anthology. I didn't and I set to work on what I thought would be a short piece that turned into a full-length book. So in a sense, he has given life to it and uh, uh, certainly, uh, if not for Jay, I would not have written Alphabetical Africa. Incidentally, I, I published four books with New Directions, not three. Um, I um, remember sending, I'd, it's 20 years now, I, I finished uh, the first half of the book in December 1972 and mailed the manuscript to Jay and was elated to receive uh, word from him that he would publish it, provided that the second half was as, um, um, as had the same, conveyed the same spirit and was as inventive as the first. I'm sort of putting words in your mouth there. Um, and um, actually, uh, Jay also participated in that he gave me the title for the book. The book, Alphabetical Africa, is Jay's title. Do you remember that? Uh, no. uh, I, I had, uh, my titles were um, just not right. I had four or five, and uh, Jay very discreetly said, well, have you considered Alphabetical Africa? And it was by far the best. And I think it, it's sort of appropriate for this occasion that I read from the book. Um, uh, George has uh, described the structure, so I need not go into it. Anyhow, you'll catch on. And I'm going to sort of skip through the book and uh, read for a few minutes. Uh, <clears throat> A. <clears throat> Ages ago, Alex, Alan, and Alva arrived at Antibes. And Alva allowing all, allowing anyone against Alex's admonition, against Alan's angry assertion, another African amusement. Anyhow, as all argued, an awesome African army assembled and arduously advanced against an African anthill assiduously annihilating ant after ant. And afterward, Alex astonishingly accuses Albert as also accepting Africa's antipodal ant annexation. Comically, affirmatively, and also accurately. Ages ago, an archaeologist Albert ably attended an archaic African affair at Antibes, attracting attention as an archaeologist and atheist. Ah, atheism. Anyhow, Albert advocated assisting African ants. Ants all are astounded. Ants? Absurd. Africa again. Albert arrives arguing about uh, African art, about African angst, and also, alas, attacking Ashanti architecture, as author again attempts an agonizing alphabetical appraisal. Asked about affection, Albert answers, Ashanti affection also aesthetically abhorrent antagonizing all. Uh, uh, let's see, I... I'm now at the G section. Uh, there are 52 parts in this. 
genuine gestures are African gestures because Africans can, by few gestures, demonstrate a deep and abiding affection between altogether different foreign bodies. Each clap, each groan, each facial gesture conveying a convincingly eternal, dramatic African confusion and also a fusion of bodies as bodies explore boundaries, generously emitting a fresh African ecstasy and by bringing gifts, following each day's example, as each day brings certain gifts. All Africans drop bows and arrows and closely embrace an anticipation. Correspondingly, author asserts a boundary cannot collapse before all appropriate gifts are delivered. There is a plot, but I'm not going to... Uh, um, discuss it, it'll be just, it's much too com complex. Um, this is Jay. Just journals, just confessions. Alex's chief indiscretions are his collected journals. Daily he industri industriously edits and deletes and also adds a few items concerning his appetite, his intentions, his interest in his, Afri in his African guide and Alan's curious jealousy. But basically, he is describing his journal and his journeys in his journal. He explains it as follows. It is a journal about a journey from Jada, and another journal about a journey from Jeba. Jada and Jeba are far apart. Few Africans have been in both cities because few can cover a great distance by foot. Alex has jotted down each day's distance in his journal because accuracy is essential, because he can hide his intentions from Alan behind an incredibly detailed account, an in-depth account, including exact distances. But Alan isn't curious. Anyhow, in Africa, black-covered journals are common, I discover, among foreigners. I can easily cite a dozen examples. A few are influenced initially by desire for an acceptable and dignified hobby. But hobbies form habits. André Gide had a journal. It influenced his habits. He also hid his journals in his bedroom as long as he could. But Gide hadn't been in Jada and Jeba. As for Alex, his journals contain his insight into Alan's bizarre conduct, into Alan's apathy, into Alan's easygoing, cheerful acceptance of Africa. Alex describes his astonishment. How can Alan accept Africa? Actually, Alex's descriptions and his concern aren't about Alan at all. Alex is chiefly concerned about his discovering his inacceptable darkness. Each journey is an excuse for exploring his despondency. Consequently, his journals are false. If Alan isn't curious about jur Alex's journals, it is because he is clever, and because if one compares both Alan, Alan's and Alex's heads, he has a better head. Alex continuously carries his heavy and false journals in his briefcase because his journals are exceedingly heavy. He doesn't carry anything else. His bags are being carried by an African guide. In his journals, Alex also explores his guide's joviality, but his chief concern is his journals. His journals are actually a joint exploration, a combined journey. He and his guides have having joined forces despite Alan's anger. Uh, Veiled threats. This is the V now. Prior to my departure, my hasty... and unplanned for departure from Antibes, I kept receiving veiled threats. 
Actually, I, this is not, I'm sorry, I'm reading the wrong part here. I blocked this out. I'm sorry. Vanishing Africa, vanishing Alva, vanishing African armies, swallowed up in the bush, in the jungles, vanishing alligators, apes, and ants. Africa is a favorite topic in literature. It gives license to so much excess and now to a shrinking landmass. Lake Victoria is being drained to stop the Ugandans from crossing by boat. I'm visibly moved by the spirit, the patience, the unflagging energy of the moving crew from Upper Volta as they, at least half a million men, quickly and expertly, expertly move and transplant trees and low hills and entire settlements from the eastern and western edges, since the edges are the first to vanish. Each day the coastlines of Africa the coastline of Africa is changing. Undoubtedly, this has affected the torpor-ridden population, has affected their melancholic outlook. Queen Kwat, after a month of indecision, has finally permitted one of her foreign advisers to indicate on the palace maps the extent of the land shrinkage. Admittedly, it now takes fewer painters to cover the entire surface of Tanzania. She is a queen who is having her entire country painted orange. Um, uh, but that's another chapter. Uh, Africa is diminishing in size. It is considerably smaller than all the pocket atlases indicate. Still, it is roomy enough for an Abercrombie and Fitch organized outing. Six or seven men in bush jackets accompanied by 50 black gun carriers, basket carriers, tent carriers, but not more than 50 since the now smaller Africa couldn't absorb it. And uh, just a few more minutes, I'll read W. Why write? The bushman in Valikali asked me, why write if you can use semaphore for smoke signals? I wouldn't want it any other way, I said. I came here in order to rehearse what I will say when I meet Alva in Dar es Salaam. We leave the tent at night and briefly there in the dark, in the dark forest, in the dark, in the thick forest, consider the silence that sustains Africa in our minds. Afterward, back inside the tent, reclining on our cots, we relax. Later, much later that night, I think I can hear the sea, but we're hundreds of miles from the coast. The three of us use words, few words, but we use them correctly, precisely. We use them without any hesitation, any lingering doubt or fear. We're all dressed alike, and we all have the same equipment. Unlike me, they're professionals, but we do not explore our differences. We're all white, and although our skins are not the same shade of white, had we been here a hundred years ago, we most likely would have been trading in guns or slaves. Tomorrow we intend to have a crack at climbing Kilimanjaro just for the pleasure of it. Both Bob and Boyd are discreet. They do not question me about Aunt Eves, about my relationship with Nicholas's wife, or refer to the missing gold ornaments. They read the newspaper clippings, but they do not attempt to go through my papers. I assume they know I am a writer, but I may be mistaken about that. At night, in front of the fire, we sit and exchange a few words. Both of the men are expert gunmen. They wouldn't think twice about killing someone for a few thousand dollars. Two thousand, precisely. We get along well. I show them the newspaper clippings containing the photographs of Alex and Alan, although their appearance may have changed somewhat after all this time in the bush. I doubt if anyone will miss the two. The next morning, when I wake up, Bob and Boyd are outside doing some target practice. It never occurred to me to be afraid, not for one moment. X. Xenophon showed a misplaced courage. Instead of founding a new city, 
for settling down or simply heading for Africa, he and his cast of 10,000 headed back home as if there existed no other alternative. Xenophon's hold on history is clearly slipping. His tomb is cracking. Thank you. Work, classic work. Yeah. There is in the literature of the Middle Ages, oh, about 1200, a bloke who tried to do the same thing that Walter did in Latin, but he didn't get a good story out of it the way Walter did. Shows progress in literature. <laughs> One wonders if Walder has looked into uh, uh, Georges Perec's uh, book, a novel which is written without using the vowel E. Uh, quite a long book, and someone is, I believe, trying a translation, which has been going on for some seven years. <clears throat> uh, Donald Lamb is the president and the chairman of W.W. Uh, w. Norton, um, which distributes, I believe, the New Directions books. He's certainly a member of the New York Direc uh, New Directions Board of Directors. I asked uh, an old friend from, uh, I published with that uh, company, I asked um, Jay on the way down how he would describe uh, Donald. He pointed out that he is the uh, funniest editor in the United States, which is an awful way to introduce anybody. Jay's <laughs> <laughs> words. <laughs> For once, I'll try to be serious. It happened this way. A burly, wild-haired man in a too-small sports jacket careened down the aisle at Yale's Strathcona Hall. He was steadied by his escort, whose elegance contrasted markedly with the appearance of the rumpled poet. When the odd couple reached the stage, it seemed for a moment that the show would not go on. The poet slumped into a chair, ready for a very public nap. Only when the chairman of the English department, his erstwhile support system, mentioned his name a second time did he come forward. Supporting the lectern with both hands, he gazed at his audience, a strange amalgam of professors, graduate students, elderly women, the self-styled colonial dames of New Haven, and the contingent of freshmen drummed into attending the reading or lecture or whatever the hell it was to be. And then after endless silence, the voice rang out. The force that through the green fuse drives the flower drives my green age, that blasts the roots of trees is my destroyer. I had never experienced anything like it. The spoken words rising and falling in melodic cadence it was poetry as drama, and the hour passed rapidly. We left Strathcona Hall that day for the Yale Co-op in fruitless search of a copy of the poet's work. None was to be found, the publisher's uh, fateful lot. But in the undergraduate reading room of the library, I found a trim volume bound in green cloth, the collected poems of Dylan Thomas. I read what I had heard recited and more. Before returning the volume to the shelf, something compelled me to look at the title page. 
There on the same page as the title and author was an imprint I'd never seen before, New Directions Publishing Company, and an address that I took in as Norwalk, Connecticut. As one who had spent summers on my grandmother's farm in Stamford, a mere half dozen miles from Norwalk, I could not imagine where a publishing company would set up shop in gritty old Norwalk. Far more puzzling was the phrase that appeared, as I recall, facing the title page, New Directions books are published by James Lachlan. The collected poems of Dylan Thomas was not the last New Directions volume I encountered in my undergraduate years. Another was assigned in one of my courses. I actually paid money for it. Selected poems of Ezra Pound. My right of, of initiation into the world of New Directions was, of course, not unusual. It continues to this day for many of you, I'm sure, in the audience. In fact, in this, our late 20th century culture, the university is no mere conservatory of ideas. It has become, and alas, will persist as the main transmission belt for new literary initiatives. Those who believe that poetry in particular receives the gift of an audience in the small magazines, in dimly lit cafes, smoking and non, or in libraries and wise of all dimension, uh, denominations. Those people are not mistaken. <coughs> in this age of mass markets, one must find places where the few assemble to seek what is not ordinary or tawdry. Yet I have evidence at hand that the volume of Dylan Thomas's poetry that was so hard to find in 1950 now sells annually at the rate of 9,000 copies a year, pushing total sales well past 350,000. And I find evidence, too, that new directions in other directions, drama, for instance, with Tennessee Williams' Glass Menagerie at some 30,000 copies a year, and fiction with Hermann Hesse's Siddhartha at 18,000 copies a year that New Directions has created followings for its authors that the largest publishers might envy. These writers were not particularly seeking readers in the universities of the English-speaking world, yet it was no accident that New Directions came into existence on the campus of Harvard University. Here was no college literary magazine sponsored by its institution, but an independent adventure in publishing launched by a student who very nearly ended his college education several years shy of an undergraduate degree. It was from its inception the length and shadow of a very tall man. Those of us who have come within Jay's orbit and share his passion for the hills of New England, his Norfolk, Connecticut is a far cry from the Norwalk I had mistakenly read on that Dylan Thomas title page and also for the ski slopes of Alta, Utah, find it easy to square this outdoorsman with the indoorsman who has been one of the few complete publishers of our time. An ongoing series of volumes of letters which my firm is publishing between some of the celebrated New Directions authors and their publisher testifies to that. Merely consider, I quote, the book is now at the bindery and should be ready in about a week. I think you'll like it. I saw the sheets and think it is about the best book I have ever designed. 
I am sorry I had to cross you in a few things, but I take myself seriously as a typographer, and that is part of the fun. I think when you see the finished product, you won't feel so badly about things. I refer to the left flush settings, spaces between paragraphs, and titles on two lines. That had to be. The style would have been ruined by a title sticking into the margins or in smaller type than the others. That was Jay Lachlan to Delmore Schwartz. And now consider this. It's a splendid, and I quote, it's a splendid book, excellently presented, but it still seems strange to me. I think you have realized it better than I could do in the slow process of writing it to the accompaniment of discouragement inevitable in view of the small likelihood of any immediate appreciation. You have put a critical estimate upon it, which has made it uh, somewhat to my amazement. This is the rare collaboration between writer and publisher, which is almost unheard of today. William Carlos Williams wrote that. We have here two intimate glimpses of a way of publishing, of a publishing house like no other. The title story in what was to become Delmore Schwartz's signature work is entitled, as we uh, all know, In Dreams Begin Responsibilities. Those words might be a colophon for a publishing house, but for one small drawback. They suggest a start, but what of the present? and the years to come. For those of Jay Lachlan's colleagues charged with maintaining and extending the reach of the firm, for all of us to whom New Directions is one of the great adventure stories in publishing, and an amusing one too, and above all, for those who care that writers who take risks and succeed will find a place for their works, the colophon, the colophon might more fittingly read, in dreams, continue responsibilities. Thank you. Robert Creeley uh, published five books of poetry with uh, New Directions. Hello, Later, Mirrors. Memory Gardens, and most recently, uh, Windows, published a couple of years ago. He's the distinguished professor at SUNY Buffalo, writer of over 23 books of, uh, of poetry and prose. He, of course, is our New York State poet. He received that honor in 1989. Fulbright Award, Guggenheim Fellowships twice. Robert Creeley. Think, listening to charming colleagues and thinking of the <clears throat> situation and wanting, in fact, to make as, as clear as possible the, um, the dear authority and resource that Jay Lachlan has been, uh, really almost ever since I can remember in any world of writing and reading that I, that I was aware of, the, the incalculable uh, significance of a, of a publisher uh, who not only recognizes those whom he thus 
publishes, but responds to them in no in no condescending or 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 distracting manner, but recognizes them as peers and and, and friends and 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 equals in a and in, in as has been said, an extraordinary adventure. Uh, I kept thinking of Ezra Pound's um, citing or emphasis upon Remy de Gaumont's uh, point that uh, freely to write what one chooses is the sole pleasure of the writer. Uh, that pleasure continues in the situation of publishing, not simply as argument against any authority that might advise or, or, or recognize in that sense, but to always hope that it will be a cooperation and a mutual place. Uh, that Jay has given me as a writer uh, immensely. I think, for example, back to time in college when uh, his books were the, the key, uh, as, as George has put it, uh, to enlightened sensibility and to, uh, to, to possibility, literally. Uh, I was in college in the early 40s, for example, and our particularly resourceful bookstore then was uh, Gordon Kearney's uh, The Grolier Bookshop on Plimpton Street. And we would glean it literally for any title of, uh, of, of Jay's publication that, that we could find. And I was thinking too how, these, how a series, for example, such as Poet of the Month, uh, wherein I first read Kyle Rakosi, uh, I think The Broken Span, or the Pharos series, in which one of my uh, yeah, influential teachers had published an, a, a significant monograph on Stendhal, towards Stendhal, or the um, Direction series, uh, or the New Classics, as has been mentioned, the Juna Barnes and also uh, K. Boyle's Monday Night, for example, as two instances, or equally Flaubert's uh, Three Tales. Uh, I was trying just a day ago to make clear to a pleasant young friend in Buffalo a kind of book that really delights me, almost like some succulent and terrific uh, cookie, or just feels so comforting and solid. Uh, I was, it's an echo from my childhood, really, a time when I would read so-called big little books. And I said, you know, like New Directions, the, the new classic series, or, or Direction, or, and they, of course my friend didn't, didn't quite know what I was talking about. Uh, back in those days, I recall a dear classmate and, 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 and exceptional friend, uh, John Hawkes, uh, had been in a writing class directed by Albert Gerard, and there was this incredible moment when uh, Jack, uh, Jay had come to, the, come to Cambridge, and had uh, Jack had gone over with, and had talked with him, and and Jay had said, "Now I would like to publish. Uh, we're going to publish a, in this series um, direction. We're going to publish uh, Cyril Connolly's uh, The Rock Pool, and then with your interest and permission, we'd like to publish your uh, The Cannibal." <laughs> And Jack said it was like one of the most, yeah, it was the most extraordinary moment he'd ever had. I mean, the, his, his, his first novel was momently to be in this delicious place and possibility. Jay's support of, of my particular interest came somewhat later, in the early 50s, uh, when I had sent him my uh, fledgling stories uh, under the title, as I recall, Mr. Blue. It was my ambition to have a to have a book just like Jack's, but in any case, um, 
Charles Olson had provided generous introduction, etc. And I never forget Jay's letter of acceptance, thank God, but it was simply, um, frankly, I find these awfully dull and dry reading, but I suppose they're the kind of effort I should support. <laughs> Therefore, they will be in the such and such an issue of the annual. Then my ambition to be published by New Directions was, was ex extremely intense. I mean, published, for example, all my heroes, very particular heroes, as Pound and Miller and w William Carlos Williams, the most defining poet for me as, a, as an elder. Uh, so in the late 50s, from Guatemala no less, uh, I had had some stories published uh, in, by Scribner's uh, in a series called A Short Story. And I had a, had a, I had a happily ingenuous sense of, of, of wanting to respect the contractual terms, et cetera, et cetera. And Jay, in the meantime, had, had, had written to say that he would be interested in a collection of new poems uh, if, I, if, I, if they, I had such a body of work free. Uh, so I spoke of this contractual agreement, as I understood it, saying that my, 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 my next manuscript would, would be uh, under option to Scribner's. And so I literally collected every, everything I'd ever written and sent it in a, in a, in a, in a, in a bunch uh, to, um, to, to Scribner's, who lo and behold accepted it, and so that for some years after, uh, up till that must have been the late 50s from then until um, the middle 70s when, when Charles Scribner Jr. Uh, retires uh, and the firm undergoes significant change. Uh, at that point I determined to leave and I, w I applied to Jay's interest who almost like the proverbial light in the window uh, took, <laughs> took me in in my uh, yeah, very needy state and has been an absolute rock of resource and, and, and generous provision ever since. Apropos, I want therefore to read a poem from the, um, from the first um, book he, that New Directions publishes called Hello, sort of aptly named. Find it. Wait, wait. So there. Da, 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 da. Where is the song? What's wrong with life ever? More or less? Days, nights, these days. What's gone is gone forever. Every time, old friends voice here. I want to stay somehow. If I could, if I would, where else? to go. The sea hears out the window, old switcher's house, vertical, railroad blues, lonesome whistle, etc. Can you think of Yee's Cafe in Needles, California, opposite the train station? Can you keep it ever together, old buddy, talking to yourself again? Meantime, some yuck in Hamilton has blown the whistle on a charming evening I wanted to remember otherwise. The river there, that afternoon sitting, friends, wine and chicken, watching the world go by. Happiness, happiness, so simple. What's that anger? Is that competition sad when this at least is free, to put it mildly? 
My Aunt Bernice in Nokomis, Florida's last act, a poem for George Washington's birthday, do you want to say it's bad? In America, old sport, we shoot first, talk later, or just take you out to dinner. No worries, or not at the moment, sitting here eating bread, cheese, butter, white wine like Bellinas, whale town. My home, like they say, in America, it's one world, it can't be another. So the beauty beside me rises, looks now out window, and breath keeps on breathing, hearts pulled in, a sudden deep sad longing to want to stay, be another person someday when I grow up. The world somehow forever that way, and it's lovely, royally shifting shores, sounding now in my ears. My ears, well, what's on my head as two skin appendages comes with the package. I don't want to argue the point. Tomorrow it changes, gone, abstract, new places, moving on. Is this some old-time weird Odysseus trip, sans paddle up the endless creek, thinking of you, baby, thinking of all the things I'd like to say and do, old-fashioned time it takes to be anywhere at all. Moving on, Mr. Ocean, Mr. Skies got the biggest blue eyes in creation. Here comes the sun. While we can, let's do it. Let's have fun. Uh, Tom Clark, who was a poetry editor of the Paris Review, um, interviewed uh, Allen Ginsberg in, in uh, Cambridge and wrote me about what happened there. He said, uh, Allen demanded that we make a pilgrimage to see E.M. Forster in King's College, whom I guess he considered the top literary honcho in town, sort of a take-me-to-your-leader kind of thing. I was horrified at this request because Allen was already in his finger symbols and deep breathing phase, had a prophet's beard, had just been thrown out of Czechoslovakia by the secret police, and was, in my book, just way too all-around outrageous to be walking in on E.M. Foster. We went around to the venerable storyteller's rooms, but to my great relief, he wasn't in. Alan did leave a cheery note for him, decorated with exploding sunflowers, third eyes, peace symbols, and skull and crossbones. I've always wondered what E.M. Foster made of that note. Well, Alan didn't meet E.M. Forster, but he is here to meet us, Alan Ginsberg. Uh, I'd like to approach the uh, occasion uh, pointing out that, that obviously uh, Jay Lachlan and New Directions has published a major portion of my own canon of what has uh, of works that I like uh, from beginning when in the 40s when I began reading Rambo and the Louise various translations and Lorca. Obviously the modernist 
open form tradition of Pound, Williams, Rakosi, Reznikov, often Rex Roth, and then in my own generation, or a little earlier, Duncan, Kerouac, Levertov, Snyder, Lawrence Ferlinghetti, McClure, Corso, and Robert Creeley, whom you just heard from, as well as my own first po prose poems back in the 50s. So I thought what I might do is try and extract from that what I spoke of as a canon. What were the basic principles of the open form or postmodern or modern or what you'd like, whatever you might call it, Pound Williams, imagist, objectivist, uh, projective, beat, uh, sensibility, or, or technique as a sort of essay in trying to refine into slogans whatever it was we thought we were doing, Jay. So I, I won't discourse on them. I'll just read the slogans uh, one after another. I, uh, having to teach in a Buddhist environment, uh, modernist literature, uh, with the uh, I've written, uh, I've put together a series of slogans taken from many of the poets that I've mentioned, and under the title "Mind Writing Slogans," with the um, epigraph from William Blake: "First thought." is best in art, second in other matters. And this is divided into three parts, the ground, the basic situation of the mind in the writing, second, the path or the technique or skillful means, and third, the fruition, uh, sort of a traditional Buddhist uh, division of um, beginning, uh, taking, casing the situation, figuring out what you're going to do and what do you do. One, so it's 51 uh, sections, very rapid, 10 minutes worth. First thought, best thought, Chögyam Trungpa Rinpoche. Uh, the mind must be loose, John Adams as quoted by Robert Duncan. One perception must immediately and directly lead to a further perception, Charles Olson. Surprise mind, five, magic, is the total delight or total appreciation of chance. Magic is the total appreciation of chance. Chögyam Trungpa Rinpoche. Six, do I contradict myself? Very well, I contradict myself. I am large, I contain multitudes. Seven, what quality went to form a man of achievement, especially in literature? Negative capability. That is, when a man is capable of being in uncertainties, mysteries, doubts, without any irritable reaching after fact and reason. John Keats. Form is never more than an extension of content. Robert Creeley to Charles Olson. Ordinary mind includes eternal perceptions. Notice what you notice. How? Catch yourself thinking. How? Observe what's vivid. How? Vividness is self-selecting. If it's vivid, it's vivid. If it isn't, it isn't vivid. Twelve, spots of time, William Wordsworth. Fifteen, uh, fourteen spots of time. Fifteen, if we don't show anyone, we're free to write anything. Sixteen, <laughs> how do we talk to ourselves at night in the dark? Quote, each on his bed spoke to himself alone, making no sound. Charles Reznikov. So this is sort of the condition of chaos of the mind and how to 
make use of that. The next would be the method, uh, the obvious slogans, which we all know. 18, no ideas but in things, or no ideas but in the facts. Both quotes from William Carlos Williams. Close to the nose, William Carlos Williams. Sight is where the eye hits, Louis Zukowski. Clamp the mind down on objects, William Carlos Williams. Direct treatment of the thing or object, Ezra Pound, 1912. Presentation, not reference, Ezra Pound. Give me a for instance, vernacular. Show, not tell, vernacular. The natural object is always the adequate symbol, Ezra Pound. Things are symbols of themselves, Chirgyam Trungpa Rinpoche, on Mahamudra. 28. Details are the life of prose, Jack Kerouac. 29. Labor well the minute particulars. Take care of the little ones. He who would do good for another must do it in minute particulars. General good is the plea of the scoundrel, hypocrite, and flatterer, for art and science cannot exist but in minutely organized particulars. 30. And being old, she put a skin on everything she said. William Butler Yeats. What shall I do for pretty girls now my old board is dead? And being old, she put a skin on everything she said. 31. Don't stop to think of words but to see the picture better. Kerouac. My writing is a picture of the mind moving. Philip Whalen. Maximum information, minimum number of syllables. Pound's advice, re-imagism, recapping some of this. Direct treatment of the thing, economy of words, composed in sequence of musical phrase, not sequence of metronome. 35. Follow the tone leading of the vowels. Ezra Pound. 36. An attempt to approximate classical quantitative meters. Ezra Pound. Syntax condensed. Sound is solid. 38. Intense fragments of spoken idiom best. 39. Savor vowels. Appreciate consonants. 40. Only emotion objectified endures. Zukowski. Or only emotion endures. Pound, and then the additional only emotion objectified endures from Louis Zukowski. Third part, fruition, which is uh, maybe going a little beyond the traditional slogans of the basic imagist, objectivist, activist. This is more Buddhist uh, orientation, but the fruition part aspect, spiritus, Latin, equals breathing, equals inspiration, equals unobstructed breath. Inspiration as unobstructed breath or unobstructed mind. 42. The emperor joins heaven and earth. That is to say, man joins heaven and earth. Speech joins mind and body. Thus, thoughts and words come from mind, impalpable. They ride out into space on the physical breath coming from the body, palpable. Thus, word conjoins or synchronizes or connects mind and body. Thus, speech as sacred connection of mind and body. Thus, speech as emperor of the phenomenal world. Thus, speech as imperial proclamation. Thus, poetry as proclamation from the throne of mind. What are the characteristics of the throne of majesty? Meekness or humility, i.e., ordinary mind. B, 
sparkiness or vividness, surprise mind, raw thought, C, outrageous or crazy wisdom, wild mind, jump cut, dissociation, collage, montage, music video, discontinuity, gaps, Bob Dylan, the purpose of art is to stop time, Carlos Castaneda, stop the world. D, last of the four characteristics of uh, wild mind, uh, inscrutability, no linear or reductive abstract bounded thought, unpredictability, unborn thought appearing instantaneously, i.e. first thought, best thought. 44, I'm going to try speaking some reckless words and I want you to try listening recklessly. Translated by Burton Watson. 45, Kerouac, the unspeakable visions of the individual. 46, needn't be genius for production of artifact, amateur homemade method okay as mind training in being present, knowing your mind, appreciating your mind and others, i.e. appreciating the 10,000 things of this world. 47, subject is known by what she sees. 48, others can measure their vision by what we see. 49, candor, Whitman's word, candor ends paranoia. 50, make it new. 51, ultimate fruition to diminish the mass of human and sentient suffering. So to conclude, I'd like to pay homage to uh, Jay with one brief poem and of my own, and one brief poem of Gregory Corso, whom is faithfully and steadfastly published over the decades. So this is Autumn Leaves. At 66, just learning how to take care of my body, to wake cheerful 8 a.m. and write in a notebook, rising from bedside naked, leaving a naked boy asleep by the wall, mix miso, mushroom, leeks, and winter squash breakfasts, Check blood sugar, clean teeth exactly, brush, toothpick, mouthwash, oil my feet, put on white shirt, white pants, white socks, sit solitary by the sink a moment before brushing my hair, happy not yet to be a corpse. (laughs) And and from Gregory Corso, uh, a poem that contradicts everything that I've said. in these slogans, and yet at the same time handles abstractions with a concreteness and a, and a sort of vernacular, intense fragments of spoken idiom best would be the uh, method. The whole mess, almost. I ran up six flights of stairs to my small furnished room, opened the window, and began throwing out those things most important in life. First to go, truth, squirreling like a fink. Don't, I'll tell awful things about you. Oh, yeah, well, I have nothing to hide. Out. Then went God, glowering and whimpering in amazement. It's not my fault. I'm not the cause of it all. Out. (laughs) Then love, cooing bribes. You'll never know impotency. All the girls on Vogue covers, all yours. I pushed her fat ass out and screamed, you always end up a bummer. I picked up faith, hope, charity, all three clinging together. Without us, you'll surely die. With you, I'm going nuts. Goodbye. (laughs) Then beauty. Ah, beauty. As I led her to the window, I told her, you I loved best in life, but you're a killer. Beauty kills. Not really meaning to drop her, I immediately ran downstairs getting there just in time to catch her. 
You saved me, she cried. I put her down and told her, move on. Went back up to six flights, went to the money. There was no money to throw out. The only thing left in the room was death, hiding beneath the kitchen sink. I'm not real, he cried. I'm just a rumor spread by life. Laughing, I threw it out, kitchen sink and all, and suddenly realized humor was all that was left. All I could do with humor was to say, out the window with the window. Thank you. And last of the tributes, Elliot Weinberger. Uh, on the way down in the car, uh, Jay said that if he were, although uh, just 30, if he lived in France, he would be in the Academy, uh, the brightest, uh, the Academy Francaise, the brightest cat in the United States. Uh, newly published in New Directions, two books of essays, works on paper and outside stories. He's the translator of books by Octavio Paz, Borges, and um, et cetera, et cetera. He got the pen. Uh, Kalavakis Award recipient for promoting Latin American literature in the United States, Elliot Weinberger. I, I at least get to stretch a little bit. Um, I suppose I'm here in such distinguished company as a representative of the later generations of New Directions readers specifically those of us born after World War II and the first revolutions of the word. Um, like many others, I decided to become a writer after reading an MD book. In my case, I was 13, and the book, ironically for my life, was a small pamphlet of Miro Rukeyser's translation of Octavio Paz's Sunstone. From there, I read every MD book I could find. In those days, the black and white covers were easy marks on a bookstore shelf, regardless of whether I'd heard of the author. If N.D. published it, it was something one had to know. For me, for many of us, New Directions was the temple of modern literature. There may have been hundreds of wayside shrines, but this was the place where you got the word. I became, and still am, a fundamentalist New Directionist. If James Lachlan had been a different type, if he had had any egomania at all, I and many others would have been out in the airport selling incense and roses for the press. Instead, my fanaticism took another form. At 18, I dropped out of college to attend the Esuversity, though I never did have any contact with the big boss himself. This meant doing everything Pam said you had to do by age 30 to be a poet. I read the English poets in chronological order, studied Chinese for years, played with Italian and Provencal to read Dante and the Troubadours, translated poetry professionally from the one language I sort of knew, and so on. Even more, to read Pound and the other modern poets was to enter into a university curriculum of the endless and diverse sources from history, mythology, religion, anthropology, economics, the plastic arts, philosophy, that had informed the poems. Nearly everything I know comes from tracking poems, and most of those poems, not by chance, were published by N.D. When The New Yorker finally caught up with James Laughlin in New Directions last year, 
I was dumbfounded to read their pronouncement that after 1950, N.D. failed to publish a single major New American writer. Kenneth Rex Ross, Charles Olson, George Oppen, Charles Rosnikoff, Robert Creeley, Robert Duncan, Gary Snyder, Hayden Carruth, Jerome Rothenberg, Denise Levertov, to name a few of them, maybe beneath the bemused condescension of what's-his-name with the monocle, but they are the venerable ancestors in my longhouse. And I'd like to spend the rest of my allotted time tonight reading a few of their short poems, just a few perfect stones from the mountain of N.D. Robert Duncan from Bending the Bow, Passages 5, The Moon. So pleasing, a light, round, haloed, partially disclosed, a ring, night's wedding signet, maybe a great lady drawing her tied skirts up in whirls and loosening to the gilt shore margins of her sea robes or he, his consent, releasing dreams, the dazzling path remaining over the waves, a lord too, lunar moth king, Oberon gleaming amidst clouds. From what source the light of their faces, the light of their eyes, the dark glance that illumines, the kindling look as if over the shimmer of the lake, his flesh radiant, my lord and lady moon, upon whom, as if with love, the sun at the source of light reflects, lifted, Mount Shasta in snowy reverie, floats. George Oppen from This in Which. Psalm. In the small beauty of the forest, the wild deer bedding down, that they are there. Their eyes effortless, the soft lips nuzzle and the alien small teeth tear at the grass. The roots of it dangle from their mouths, scattering earth in the strange woods. They who are there. Their paths nibble through the fields. The leaves that shade them hang in the distances of sun. The small nouns crying faith in this in which the wild deer startle and stare out. Charles Reznikoff, um, probably the writer from whom I've learned most how to write, from By the Waters of Manhattan. A, a poem that I think you have to read about a hundred times to realize how difficult it is to, to write this. The sky is a peculiar blue with small clouds, numerous and white, not the luminous blue seen in paintings, but a cheap, opaque blue, once painted in the vestibules of tenements with the same small clouds. Yet here it is, real sky, real clouds. A young woman dressed in white is seated on a bench in the park eating an apple and reading a magazine. The apple is a summer pippin, green outside, but the inside is brown and decayed, and she eats it with small, dainty bites. 
Um, most of the things I wanted to read from Kent Rexroth are too long for, for this slot, so I thought I'd take one of his great Chinese translations. This one from the Sun Dynasty woman poet, Li Ching Chao. Um, the orchid boat is a, is a common Chinese trope for female genitals. Sorrow of departure. Red lotus incense fades on the jeweled curtain. Autumn comes again. Gently I open my silk dress and float alone on the orchid boat. Who can take a letter beyond the clouds? Only the wild geese come back and write their ideograms on the sky under the full moon that floods the west chamber. Flowers after their kind flutter and scatter. Water after its nature, when spilt, at last gathers again in one place. Creatures of the same species long for each other. But we are far apart, and I have grown learned in sorrow. Nothing can make it dissolve and go away. One moment it is on my eyebrows, the next it weighs on my heart. Finally, I thought I would read the, the, uh, the beginning and end of, of um, Octavio Paz's Sunstone, the beginning in the, uh, the Miro Rukeyser translation from 1962, the book that got me started in this racket. Ray of crystal, a poplar of water, a pillar of fountain by the wind drawn over, tree that is firmly rooted and that dances, turning course of a river that goes curving, advances and retreats, goes round about, arriving forever. The calm course of a star or the spring, appearing without urgency, water behind a stillness of closed eyelids, flowing all night and pouring out prophecies, a single presence in the procession of waves, wave over wave until all is overlapped in a green sovereignty without decline, a bright hallucination of many wings when they all open at the height of the sky. And the end of the poem, which circles back to its beginning, this time in my own translation, published 30 years later by N.D., and written with the hope that it will send some other kid off on a track that will lead to another translation of the poem that James Laughlin and New Directions will publish 30 years from now. I want to go on, to go further, and cannot. As each moment was dropping into another, I dreamt the dreams of dreamless stones, and there at the end of the years like stones, I heard my blood singing in its prison, and the sea sang with a murmur of light. One by one the walls gave way, all of the doors were broken down, and the sun came bursting through my forehead. It tore apart my closed lids, cut loose my being from its wrappers, and pulled me out of myself to wake me from this animal sleep and its centuries of stone, and the sun's magic of mirrors revived a crystal willow, a poplar of water, a tall fountain the wind arches over, a tree deep-rooted yet dancing still, a course of a river that turns, moves on, doubles back, and comes full circle, forever arriving. Thank you.
This evening has been very heartening for an old man who often doubts whether he did the best he could have if he hadn't spent so much time running around, skiing, working for the Ford Foundation, going to India, raising a certain amount of hell. Um, working with people, writers such as you have heard tonight, has been more than rewarding. It has been inspiring for my own work. And I can't thank them enough, and I can't thank you enough as representatives of the faithful New Directions books published. This is perhaps an opportune time to say that I hope the business, the press, will go on after my death, and I have provided funds for it to do so for a period of 20 years with the present staff. Uh, 